It's time for our regular segment, Legally Speaking, with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Some interesting topics on the show. It says here the B.C. Court of Appeal agrees that you cannot farm in a forest and dismisses Central Saanich's appeal regarding their ability to enforce a tree protection bylaw. I know we've discussed this one in the past. So what happened? Indeed. I, I must say I love the fact there's no appellate authority for the proposition that you can't farm in a forest. And so <laughs> this, this is a case, as you mentioned, it's out of Central Saanich. Uh, and it's a case involving a farm. It's a farm that's been in the same family since 1937. Uh, and the uh, farm, part of it was in uh, the agricultural land reserve, but uh, a large portion of the uh, property was not in the agricultural land reserve. And back in 2020, the family that owned the farm started clearing trees from the portion of the property that was not in the agricultural land reserve so that they could expand their production of uh, grain and forage crops, including barley, as a result of increased demand. They want to make their farm bigger, right? And so they start cutting down these trees. And uh, that uh, engages Central Saanich, um, who writes them a a letter telling them they have to stop doing that. Uh, And then ultimately, the municipality demands that they uh, pay $422,000 as security pursuant to their tree protection bylaw uh, and directs uh, that the family has to uh, replace 103 of the 108 trees that were removed. On that basis, the case winds up in court with the municipality seeking an injunction and asking for this money and demanding the trees be replanted. And that led to a case which is now just resolved uh, by the Court of Appeal. Uh, And the issue in the case involved what powers does a municipality have to restrict trees from getting cut down? That's kind of a topical thing. Uh, And municipalities, as we know, are uh, all of their power is delegated by the province to them. They have no independent authority to do anything. Uh, and so you have to look at the provincial legislation that grants the municipal municipalities authority to do something. And, and in BC, we have this thing, it's called the Community Charter, and it sets out various powers. It grants to the municipality or delegates to them various powers for a municipality which is incorporated under the Local Government Act. And so where you go when you're trying to figure out, can the municipality do this? You go to that and you would look at it and say, okay, well, what, what does it say the municipality could do? And indeed, there is a section of that community charter, section 50, that allows a municipality to uh, restrict trees getting cut down. Uh, now, the trouble is it doesn't just say the municipality can cut can restrict trees from getting cut down. That would be pretty broad. Um it has some restrictions on that. Hmm. Uh, and the restrictions set out in the legislation include things like the municipality can't uh, apply a tree protection bylaw to well, a number of specific places, like a place with a tree farm license. That kind of makes sense, right? Hmm. You can't say you can't cut down your trees at your Christmas tree farm. That would be uh, pretty uh, oppressive. Yeah, I, uh, I could see that one uh, not going well. <laughs> no. <laughs> Other things like tree protection bylaws don't apply to a municip- to a utility. So let's say BC Hydro was trying to put up a hydro pole or something. Yeah. The municipality can't stop them. 
by a tree protection bylaw. Interesting. And then the one which, and that makes sense as well, yeah. otherwise everyone would be just frozen and, and incapable of doing anything. We'd have no electricity. You couldn't put up power lines. We'd be in a state of paralysis if some little municipality uh, was able to prevent that. And so they're not. Now, the relevant section here, there's a part of the Section 50, the community charter, uh, which uh, provides that uh, municipal restrictions on cutting down trees uh, do not apply if they would have the effect of preventing uh, the uses permitted pursuant to a, a zoning bylaw. And they also don't apply if the uh, tree bylaw, tree protection bylaw, would prevent the development to the density permitted under the applicable tree, under uh, the applicable zoning. Uh, and finally, uh, there are uh, restrictions that uh, you can't restrict, uh, you can't use tree bylaws to prevent uh, the development uh, of a, a property in accordance with the way it's zoned. Unless, and you can do it, and this, you can do it as a municipality, but you must then pay compensation for the reduction in market value or provide a different uh, permit uh, to permit development to the permitted density. And so the point there is this, right? If you have a piece of property that is zoned, let's say, to build a single-family home, right, uh, and it's got a bunch of saplings on it, right, mm -hmm. I mean, so a bylaw that says no trees can be cut down, <laughs> right, something like that would mean, well, you just couldn't build a house there, right? Yeah. If there are little saplings all over the place, you'd be paralyzed. And so that they cannot do that unless they effectively want to pay, in that case, it would be the entire value of the property because you could do nothing with it, right? Now, the reason this was controversial, the legal argument, was what the farmer and family, family farm wanted to do was not to build a house on the portion of the property or a barn or something. What they were wanting to do was to farm the property, right? They wanted to grow more barley, right? Hmm. And so the municipality said, well, no, 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 uh, we're quite free to stop you from doing that. That's not what development means. Development is just putting up a building. You're not putting up a building. You're trying to run a farm. We can stop you just fine. That's the legal argument that went to court and then now to the Court of Appeal. The With the North Saanich arguing, uh, the District of Central Saanich, sorry, not North Saanich, Central Saanich, arguing that development just means building structures. Hmm. And so, therefore, uh, the tree bylaw that stops you from growing more barley is fine. That's what they were arguing. The conclusion from the Court of Appeal uh, is essentially no. That interpretation is unreasonable and wrong. Uh, and the Court of Appeal uh, has upheld the decision made by the uh, original uh, uh, Chambers judge, uh, and they found that uh, that narrow interpretation uh, doesn't fly and is not reasonable and is not the law. Uh, and the, the municipality retreated to, it looks like, piece of the decision, one of those uh, sort of slippery slope arguments, uh, the municipality argued that, uh, well, if uh, we can't stop uh, trees being cut down for somebody to uh, increase their uh, farm uh, farming capacity, that anyone could come along with a single-family home and say they wish to have more lawn or they want to plant a garden there, and therefore they've cut down all the trees on their property. Uh, and the Court of Appeal said, no, 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 that's not what's meant by this. What, what is meant is that the restriction on the tree zoning or the tree protection bylaws uh, in the community charter is to prevent a municipality from uh, 
implementing a tree protection bylaw which would restrict the uh, permitted use under the zoning bylaw. And so in this case, this property, both parts of it, both part, the part outside of the ALR, was zoned for farming, agricultural use, right? Mm. And so that's a different thing when the person says, look, this is zoned for agricultural use. I'm trying to take down these trees so I can maximize my agricultural use. A municipality cannot stop that uh, unless they want to pay uh, for the impact of what they've done, which is going to be a pretty substantial uh, amount. And in fairness, so they should, right? It's not the municipality's property, yeah. right? To the to the extent that a municipality wants to come along and start materially uh, interfering with your ability to do something which for which your property is expressly zoned, it's for a farm. The people are trying to farm, yeah. right? To the extent that the municipality wants to come along and muck with that and say, you can't farm on that part of it. We like the aesthetics of the trees or whatever it might be. It seems only fair that if you think there's a great public interest in that, that financial burden should fall on the municipality, right? Uh, And that's really what the Court of Appeal has determined here. And that's a different thing from somebody saying, I want to knock down that uh, tree in the corner so I can make my lawn bigger because the growing of a lawn isn't the permitted use of uh, like a residential lot, right? The permitted yeah. use of a residential lot would be to build a house. Yeah. And yeah. as long as the tree protection bylaw doesn't restrict your ability to build the house, that's, that's fine, right? But once the uh, the definition of uh, development is not just a building, uh, it is things like farming. Uh, and so we now have a clear decision from the Court of Appeal uh, that the uh, municipality has no authority to stop the farm development by restricting trees from being cut down. Uh, and uh, as the uh, trial judge on the Court of Appeal has said, you can't farm in a forest. So <laughs> that's, the, that's the end of the argument uh, uh, for the District of Central Saanich, and it will uh, no doubt have application elsewhere now that that law has been clarified by the Court of Appeal. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, we'll continue more right after this. All right, back on the air here at CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers as we continue legally speaking. Michael, up next on the agenda, an attempt to sue a lawyer, it says here, appointed by ICBC based on pleadings dismissed. Yeah, there there are a whole bunch of things wrapped up in this case that I think were worth uh, commenting on uh, because it uh, shines a light on sort of issues of who's in charge when you're getting sued for something and you've got insurance uh, and what are these pleadings? What's going on? And what about things in them that might not be true? Well, those are really the key things here. And so that first issue about sort of who's in charge when you get sued for something when you've got insurance. And this case was an ICBC case because it predated no-fault insurance. Now we're in the land of nobody's responsible. Mm-hmm. Uh, this predated that. And so there there was an issue as to who's responsible for a car accident. Um, and the way that works, and this would apply to other kinds of insurance as well. Like, let's say you've got house insurance, and uh, you know something, and somebody trips on a uh, icy spot and sues you, for example, right? Something that might be covered by your home insurance. One of the things that you get as part of your insurance coverage is this concept of a duty to defend the claim. So, let's say somebody wipes out on your sidewalk and sues you for their injured back at your home when you have home insurance. Well. In addition to the fact that your home insurance might pay that claim if it is found to be meritorious, 
the insurance company would also be responsible for hiring a lawyer to defend the claim. And that's a pretty important part of the insurance, right? Otherwise, yeah. that could be a pretty expensive uh, operation. Uh -huh. uh, and so uh, what happens is the insurance company, in this case it was ICBC, hired a lawyer to defend the claim. Uh, and in, in this case, the person who was one of the drivers who was being sued, right, uh, had some disagreements with that lawyer in terms of how they were conducting the defense of the case, right? Uh, and the uh, argument, one of the arguments there was an interesting one, because that touches on that other concept there of this idea of what's in a notice of a civil claim or a response to it. And the way that works is if you're suing somebody, there's this thing which would be like the notice of the civil claim. It would set out why am I suing you? <laughs> what do I say you've done? <laughs> right? You know, you've uh, crashed into the back of my car, or you, uh, you know, didn't, you know, properly salt your sidewalk, or whatever it might be. Right? And you would set out all the details of who you're suing and why, and yeah. what you say the damages are. The other side then files a response to that, and they might set out why they say they're not responsible, or how they cleared their sidewalk properly, or that they didn't hit you, whatever it might be. And the person who is being sued in this case. She took issue with some of the things that the lawyer had listed in the response to the civil claim. And often, if you look at these, one of these things, if you're in the unfortunate position of ever being sued or suing somebody, um, often these things will set out a whole bunch of sort of possible things that uh, happened. Like in the car accident example, often they will say things like, well, you person ran into me from behind and uh, you, you weren't properly looking in front of you or uh, you might have been messing with the stereo or perhaps you were impaired. Something went wrong here because you crashed into the back of me inexplicably, right? Hmm. Um, and the woman who was being sued took issue with that. And she said, well, I don't think this person was drunk. I don't like that you've listed here that they might be impaired. Hmm. And she, she took the view that somehow that was lying or uh, you know accusing the person of something fraudulent, right? And so she wanted to be able to tell the lawyer, you can't do that on my behalf. Don't do that. You can't list that. Uh, and tried suing over that and telling the person you can't do that and not wanting to cooperate with the lawyer and asking for a different one to be appointed. Mm -hmm. And ICBC said, no, you don't have control over that. Um, on the basis that at the end of the day, if the claim is successful, ICBC is going to have to pay the claim, right? Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is that in a uh, civil claim like that, those two documents, like the notice of the claim and the response to it, they kind of set out the parameters of what this thing is all about, right? And if you don't uh, allege something in there, then you're not permitted to ask about it or claim that that's what went on here, right? So if you were suing somebody for running into you back when you could do that and it wasn't a uh, free-for-all of no-fault out there, mm -hmm. you, you might say, well, you crashed into me from behind. I'm not necessarily sure why you did that, but perhaps you were uh, not being attentive or you weren't uh, keeping a proper lookout or maybe you were drunk or perhaps you were fiddling with your stereo. I, I'm not sure, right? Yeah, yeah. You list all things. So if you didn't list them and then you tried to ask about them, saying, you know, did you have anything to drink before you crashed into me? There'd be an objection. Well, hold on. You've never even alleged that. You can't ask about that. And so that's why in those kinds of documents, things would be listed that may or may not have transpired because the other side is in a state of imperfect knowledge about why did you hit me from behind, right? Or why was there a big blob of ice on the steps, right? Yeah. Whether that you didn't clean it or that you were cleaned it poorly or you who knows, right? And so it would get listed there. And it's not a matter of making some false claim. 
Uh, and that's why the, the, the perception of this woman wasn't, was not a basis to sue the lawyer. It wasn't as if the lawyer was making some intentionally false claim about why the accident happened. Those documents sort of set out the parameters of what's being claimed and what might be the reason for it. And so there wasn't anything improper about that. And, and then the other element is that uh, that part of that duty to defend ultimately is that the insurance company, they have that duty, right? Uh-huh. But that also means they have some control over what's going on. Because otherwise, if you were the insured person who was getting sued for you know, somebody slipping on your steps, if you were allowed to just say, well, let's just tell that person I feel bad for them, let's just say I was completely careless and uh, let's pay them everything you're asking for, right? The insurance company, people, well, hold on a minute. <laughs> that's not what you're insured for, right? Uh-huh. And so that's why the insurance company would have control over it. And the person who's insured can't just say, take that out of the pleadings or go ahead and pay that person everything they're asking for. And furthermore, when you're an insured person who's being where the insurance company is defending you, you also have an obligation to assist the insurance company, right? Like when they ask well, the insurance company or their lawyer says, okay, well, we're, we're preparing to defend you in this slip and fall case. You know, did you clear the sidewalk? Did you put salt down? When did you do that? If you say, no, 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 I'm not helping you, <laughs> right? The result of that can be, well, that's fine. Then I guess you're not getting covered, <laughs> right? You're on your own, buddy. You've got to help, Right. And yeah. so in this case, the person being sued wasn't really the one in charge. It's really was the insurance company because they're the ones on the hook for it. They've got to pay for the lawyer and you've got to help them. And you don't have a, you don't have a right as an insured person to say, no, I don't like what you're listing in there, or let's just pay them everything they're asking for, or give me another lawyer who will do what I want. Uh, and that's because at the end of the day, the money is coming out of the pocket of the insurance company. Uh, and uh, so the claim against the lawyer saying you were negligent and didn't do what I said you were going to do and you were committing fraud by saying the person might have been intoxicated had no merit. Uh, and uh, the attempt to sue the lawyer uh, was dismissed both uh, at trial uh, and then uh, now by the Court of Appeal. But uh, I thought the cases we're talking about, because it has those important elements that would come up lots of times, and people would often, I think, might have a reaction like this woman did, not knowing those what those things are. If you were to receive a notice of claim saying, hey, maybe you were drunk or you're tuning your radio, the person might think, well, that's outrageous, I wasn't drunk. It's not a claim that you were in, in as sort of an evidentiary thing. It's just sort of setting the parameters of what could be asked about to figure out why did you run into somebody or why was there a blob of ice on your steps. So that's the uh, that's that one. Interesting. In the three and a half minutes we have left, this next one is fascinating because every so often we hear about controversies. Like there was one in the West Shore recently about what could happen if somebody attempted to have unpermitted work done on a residence to try to create an extra suite or something similar. I'm looking at this case in Surrey of a fourplex. Does that say order destroyed? Correct. Uh, wow. Order for destruction. So the background of it, and this is the second one I've seen of these cases out of Surrey recently. And so there does indeed appear to be a trend. And the background is that a fellow owned a single family home there. Uh, and he decided to turn it into a fourplex by building an additional foundation out the back, walling it in. Uh, building a suite in the basement and renting out four different apartments. And the evidence was overwhelming that he was doing that. There was a complaint and the inspector showed up and saw them building the foundation. He said, stop doing that. Then he came back and they were framing it. He said, stop doing that. And then they came back again and they were putting in plumbing and he said, stop doing that. (laughs) And then he showed up again and they were saws and things were going on inside. He said, stop doing that. And they wouldn't let him in and just kept doing it. 
Uh, and then Surrey eventually went to court and got an injunction ordering the man to stop doing this. <laughs> and he didn't stop doing it. Uh, and he rented out all four units. Uh, and then he was eventually found to be in contempt of court by st- not stopping uh, and was fined ultimately $13,000 for being in contempt of court for still not stopping. Uh, and so this uh, recent decision was the uh, city of Surrey going to court and asking for an order uh, that the ban be, uh, first of all, get a permit to demolish it, ironically, mm-hmm. uh, and then within 60 days of getting the ordered permit, demolish uh, the addition, uh, decommission the secondary suite, and return the thing to a single-family home. And so that's what he's been ordered to do. Uh, the result of it, of course, is going to be the tenants are all going to get evicted, but that's the way it is. Uh, and then the other thing which I thought was interesting when reading this, I mean, there, there are a couple of levels to it, right? One is that, of course, people should be following uh, bylaws that are in place about things and the idea of ignoring, just ignoring everything, including the injunction telling you stop doing this, is really not on. We will have chaos in the world uh, if people are just uh, doing whatever they feel like. Uh, but, oh, and I should also say this, it was interesting, the man's defense to it uh, mm-hmm. wasn't any evidence or claiming he didn't do it. It was claiming that he was unfairly targeted because many other people were doing the same thing. Uh, that's not going to work as a defense. Yeah. Now, the other level of this, so he's going to destroy it, or he'll find himself pretty quickly in, in, in jail uh, for contempt again. Uh-huh. Uh, but the other ironic thing about all of this is that we now have, of course, the province saying they're going to, uh, remove the authority of municipalities to stop people from building various things, including fourplexes. <laughs> so by the time this thing gets destroyed, it may well be not far off from when the man could go back and the municipality would be required to give him permission to rebuild it. Uh, and so uh, we'll have to keep our eye on Surrey at the moment. Uh, we'll get the tenants evicted and we'll destroy the uh, permit-free uh, fourplex uh, but it may very well be within a few months that uh, you'd be able to get permission and build exactly that, exactly there. Michael Mulligan. What's going on in Surrey. <laughs> with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. I learn new things every week on Legally Speaking. Thanks so much as always. <laughs> Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. You too.